We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. So the LA Rams will be the number two seed. They finish 13 and 3, a 13 win season for the third time in franchise history. I've been dreaming this my whole life. This don't have you. Yeah. It's time to put in the work. Yeah. Every man go dominate. Boys, offense, defense, special team. Let's go. What are we talking about? Greg Zerline sends the Rams to the Super Bowl. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is Derek C. Paula, all by myself tonight. The guys are busy as we get ready to head into week one. But you know what? I gotta be honest. I'm kind of liking the solitude a little bit. Just a chance to talk with our audience. It's been a long time, a very long time since I've had one of these days, right? Usually this summer it's been the Butting Heads crew carrying the load. And to be honest, I think this show is probably needed for me. Because it's a chance just to hopefully reconnect with you, with all of you who, who have been a part of the Rams Talk Radio family for a long time, 
just like everybody else around the world right now in this country, we've been hit hard by COVID. I know our company here has been hit hard by COVID. We got to find a way to make it through, but just have a chance to just talk some football to communicate with you is a big deal. This show started off in 2017 kind of as a, a test thing, right? I actually did a little bit in 2016, got going 2017. Here we are in 2020 and Norm was here along the way, my co-host for a long time. And so Tommy and G Mark once in a while, Mike and Steve now, but I don't think it's wrong to say this has really been my show for the most part. It's I've, been almost on almost every episode, had a couple of emergencies, but this has been my baby for a long time and it's not been fun this summer to where nothing really worked to plan. And and so quite frankly, I've missed podcasting and, and missed communicating with all of you. It's been surreal to say the least. So here we are, week one. It's just me tonight. And I guess for once, that's how I want it to be. But we're not alone overall, because this is a mega episode. Guests galore. I kid you not, we got tons of them. Tons of them. From the Rams wire, to look at the Cowboys game, we have Cam Da Silva. Also, some hidden tapes, some stuff that I never got a chance to release over the summer as part of our Tour of the League series. I've got them all here. Nick Isidori from the Bleeding Blue podcast covering the Giants. We have... Ralph Marlboro from the Saints Happy Hour podcast. Ralph is a great guy. Had a really, really good time talking with him about the hated Saints. Yep, I mean, let's be honest. Not our favorite, right? Oh, and finally, finally, how can we forget Brandon Lee Gotten from the Bleeding Green radio team, one of the legendary podcasts in NFL circles. Very, ha- very happy to have him on the show once again look at the Eagles. So four great interviews, three covering teams around the league that we didn't get a chance to put on in singular episodes, and of course our Cowboys preview. It's part of the game. All right. So before we get into them though, really quick, we're looking for sponsors for 2020. We need some support there. Make it happen. If you are interested in sponsoring us for the 2020 season, reach out to us at Ramstop1945 at gmail.com. Again, it's ramstop1945 at gmail.com. Also, I want to thank those who sponsored us in the past, Jim Hawk, and of course, of course, Sal Martinez, one of our original sponsors, to people who've been there all this time. And yet again, thank you very much for all the support you've given us over the years. So there you go. I kind of debated how I want to order to do this in, but I think we'll flip it around. And since the the Saints are are such a, shall I say, big part of Rams history in the last couple of years, some of our biggest games. Let's go ahead and talk with Ralph Marlborough from the Saints. Happy hour to preview the Saints this year. Here we go. All right, folks, we're here with Ralph Marlborough from the Saints Happy Hour podcast as part of our tour in the league. We are hitting New Orleans, and Ralph, we've Try cooking in the past, and this time we finally made do, finally made it happen. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're all kind <clears> of <throat> on pins and needles, right? We don't know what's going to happen with the season. I mean, I've been, I've been uh, 100% of people that, you know, if you're maybe not a Rams fan, you don't listen to our podcast 
much at all. But I've been saying that we're going to have – I'm 100% convinced we're going to have a season. I just don't know when it's going to start, and I don't know how long it's going to go. But I'm 100% convinced we're going to have some sort of NFL season. It's probably going to be weird and not 16 games and might have a giant interruption in the middle or weird stuff like that. But I'm 100% convinced we're going to have some kind of football. Like they can't, they can't leave – $10 million on the table. It's not going to happen. I actually kind of beat me the punch, man. You did. Cause my first question was going to be, well, we're going to have a season. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I think the big 10 and the sec kind of laid things out a bit with the sec. Once they canceled the, um, the non-conference games. And yeah. th- well, that gave, that gave, those schools some flexibility to reschedule if not if their conference games need to be moved around a bit. And I think that might just happen with the NFL. They may just say, okay, well, let's nix the interconference games. And well, I, college football, college football is a whole different animal. And I know that's not what we're here to discuss, but I think the NFL they have thirty two teams. They can give each team the exact same resources and say, look. This is how we're going to do the protocols for the coronavirus. You have to do A, B, C, and D. You have to test every day or four times a week or whatever, right? And the NFL, money's not really an object, right? So the NFL can say, Cincinnati and the Saints and the Rams, you all all have the same resources. We're all going to give you the same amount of money. Get it done so we can have a season. College football, man, LSU might have resources and Texas might, right? UL Lafayette in, in Lafayette, Louisiana, they don't, or Troy State or Texas San Antonio, right? So college football is a whole different animal if they're going to get their season. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm just talking about in terms of scheduling, not in terms of testing yeah. and so on. So in terms oh, of scheduling, oh. that template is there. Hey, just get rid of the quote-unquote non-conference games, which would be the intra-conference oh. games for the NFL, and you have oh, more leeway. Yeah. Oh, Derek, you know the NFL. Like, they released a schedule, and they told us, hey, this is our schedule. This is, a, this is the only schedule we had made. And they can tell us all that mm-hmm. bullshit. Sorry to curse. But they can tell us all of that, right? But you know they told the schedule guy who does all the inputs in the computer, they, you know they told him to do 9,000 varieties. And they've got 16 games, 12 games, 8 games. 12 games with a month break because coronavirus runs rampant through a division, right? They have every freaking permutation of the schedule. They probably, they probably, Derek, if I had to guess, I bet you they have a way to do the schedule to where that thing can finish in April. Like if they have to delay and start in January, they've got a schedule ready to go. And I believe it. I also wouldn't put it past them basically having a, a, a the I'd say winter break where this thing will get the worst oh, yeah, like in December. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean I wouldn't put a pass on I, I think there are so many different that's, possibilities that's, for it. That's actually that's actually a really interesting thought that I hadn't I hadn't thought of that like if coronavirus is really, really bad and they want to try to play, they're just like, you know what? We're going to work in, and we're going to call it the winter break, and it's going to be back-to-back buys for everybody, you know, or, or maybe even three weeks. And just so that way, it's sort of like, hey, coronavirus is running through every team. You can, like, quarantine it, and you get, like, two weeks, and that should, like, sort all the coronavirus 
up, right? So then you come back from two weeks and everybody's kind of sort of on the same footing, at least in theory. So that's a good that's a good idea, Derek, that I had not thought of. But that's how, that's totally on the table, I think. Well, how about we go down the crazy path just for craps and giggles, all right? Just the crazy path. How about you do an eight game first half of the season? Break. Eight game second half of the season and division winners from the first half and the second half. Baseball did that in eight one. Yeah, yeah. And that would I think that would be actually would be somewhat entertaining as a novelty that the division winners from the first half and the second half of eight games each would face off for the division title on that playoff berth. That oh, would be yeah. kinda cool. And you could have a team that like was a train wreck in the first half with injuries or whatnot, and they're like, Ah, oh, you're you're one and seven. On a normal season you're like you're you're done, right? Mm-hmm. But in this year, you're like, well, we're starting off zero zero. We went six and two in the second half, and we're in the playoffs. And that's what happened with baseball. And I'm going to tell you another thing about the season. And I know I don't know how old you are, and I'm I'm not that old, so I don't really remember this except that I love football history. So I went back and looked at it. In 1982, the NFL had a strike. They played three weeks, went on strike for two months, came back played six games and then had the playoffs where they let in 16 of the 28 teams at the time, right? So so basically they had a nine-game season and did the Super Bowl. The Washington Redskins ended up winning the Super Bowl. So the NFL will do whatever it takes. That's my point. Like, you know, they don't care. Like, the talking heads, Terry, can say, oh, integrity and legitimate and all that. The NFL doesn't care. If they give us a six-week season plus playoffs and it's or or eight weeks like you say or whatever and it's first half, second half and they let twenty-four teams in the playoffs and it's weird and crazy, like they don't care as long as football's on TV and they're getting their money. Like the regular things that we think about in football are out the window. Like they're gonna do whatever it takes to get football on our TV. And I think that's why we will definitely have a season. And if there's anything that's going to get in the way, it's going to be what they do about player pay. They're, the CBA is tied to a shared revenue percentage by this, and you know you're going to have a loss of revenue due to no one's in the stands. No one's in the stands. No one's buying merchandise. Well, not, there's not as much. Those, those questions they have to figure out, hopefully they are figuring out. But there is one thing we need to get into, and we're limited on time here. That's the, the Saints yeah. themselves, man. Some well, changes going on. What's what's going on with the Saints? Well, I mean, here's the thing with the Saints. Saints fans are desperate to play this year because, and I believe this, this I think this is the best roster in Saints history. Like, they are built from top to bottom. And really, their only weakness, Derek, you can say is, at linebacker, they have Demario Davis and a bunch of dudes who could be good but are hurt all the time. The rest of their roster is freaking loaded. Like they're, you know, they got Janoris Jenkins late last year at corner. Him and Lattimore at corner, plus Chauncey Gardner Johnson, who you can play in the slot. They added Malcolm Jenkins at safety. They have Marcus Williams, who the disaster in Minnesota aside, he's a Pro Bowl player. They, you know, they added Caesar Reese on the line. Like their line is is their offensive line is like they added Emmanuel Sanders, the one piece that we've been saying they need for two years, right? They have Michael Thomas and nobody else at receiver. Now they have Emmanuel Sanders at receiver. Jared Cook was amazing at the end of last year. So, you know, they're loaded 
from front to back at this roster. And I think they're really built to succeed in that. You know, the thing is, Eric, we never talk. I mean, uh, Derek, we never talk about uh, in the NFL. You know, you never talk about like, well, how's your third string offensive tackle? Because you're going to need him in December. Like, we never talk about teams in that way. We always say, well, if they stay healthy, right? And you guys sort of figured that out last year where, like, the year before you you had been – you had great health on the offensive line and everything sort of fell into place. And last year, y'all had a bunch of injuries, and suddenly you're like, oh, my God, we, we don't have any depth. And that's the thing. Like, the Saints are built like a tank. Like, they'll be able to absorb a bunch of injuries. Now – Coronavirus, that's a wild card. I don't like you can't you can't predict what's going to happen there. I mean, it could run wild through a roster like flu, right? So I don't know, but this Saints team is built to succeed and it's the best I think it's the best roster of my lifetime and that's crazy to say cuz 2018 was loaded. So in specific though, with it being loaded, what concerns you about this Saints team right now that could backfire? Like, what's the one well, thing I, that has you worried? Well, I think the one thing is, like I said, at linebacker, you have, you have Demario Davis is amazing. He's pro- I, I, you can argue he's the best all-around linebacker in football. I think that you can make a strong case for him because, because his coverage skills and his tackling are so amazing. Yeah, he's not, a, he's not a sack guy, but he does everything else amazing really well. And he rushes better than people think. But the problem is, He's on the wrong side of 30. Anzalone has the shoulders of an 80-year-old woman, right? Kiko Alonso, who they picked up last year and was a really good pickup for them, he got hurt last year, so he's coming off an injury, right? So those are your three main linebackers, and they all have flags, right? So that is biggest concern. On offensive line, they got rid of Warford who they didn't like. He got overweight. They felt like he wasn't as sharp as he was the first two years they had him. They added Caesar Reed. They're probably going to put Reed at center, move McCoy from center to guard. So that'll be an issue because if you don't have as much practice time, right, and they're probably going to wipe out the preseason. But if you if you if you have limited practices when you're trying to break in a rookie center, that could be an issue. But that's really you know that's really it. And you know th- the other concerns is just injuries, but. But that's for every team, right? You, if if you talk Rams, you, you're talking, you know, Whitworth and and this. So, so besides those couple that I that I mentioned, like everything else is just in, injury and random luck. I mean, to say that those are your concerns in a roster, I think is 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 as few a concerns as any team in the league, really. What about Drew Brees? Where do you well, see him talent wise right now at this point in his career? Where is he? Well, he's he, the thing is, is that Derek. I think, I think people over, you know, they. I, I think the stat nerds and I think they they overthink the deep ball. Like he doesn't throw the deep ball as good, although he's better than you think. But the thing that the Saints have done, Derek, is they have instead of saying, "Oh, we got to add the deep ball because the analytics nerds say we need to," we don't do this one. They have sort of embraced Drew Brees in his sort of. It's not even really a decline in production. It's just a sort of decline in his physical skills and what he can do. But the Saints have said, look, Drew Brees, he's still amazing at reading defenses, right? He can still diagnose a defense and get rid of the ball incredibly quick. So what are we going to do? We have Michael Thomas, probably the best receiver you would want if you had an aging quarterback whose arm strength is going down, right? Just a tick, right? You would want a guy Mm -hmm. who is super physical and can just beat up corners and you can throw it and he can go get it, right? 
So he's perfect. And you have Emmanuel Sanders, who, oh, by the way, we'll put him in space and, th- and, and throw more short routes to him. And we'll add a big tight end in Jared Cook, who can do things in the seam. Like, they've embraced Drew Brees' decline and built the offense around his things that are still his strengths, right? So I don't necessarily worry about him at all. The only thing is, to me, is once you get a quarterback, and, and you could say this about all of them. Once you get past the age of 38, the decline can come like that. Remember Brett Favre in 2009? MVP practically, right? Saints beat the Vikings in the NFC Championship. Favre came, came back the next year, hadn't missed a start in his whole career. He got hurt. He's banged up. He was done, right? He's out the league. So I just think with Brady and Breeze, I know their physical fitness is amazing. I know they do things to their body. They, they, they watch what they eat, and they're, and, and they're on a completely different level. But I just look at a 40-year-old guy like Brady, Breeze. They get nicked, and it's harder to recover, right? So that's my only concern there. But that's a concern for everybody. I mean, you have that with golf, right? I mean, he could get nicked, and then you're like, oh, he's playing with a bad knee. And, and you're just like, oh, he can't move. And, even, and, he's, and he's young, right? But I got to say, like, if the Saint, if they don't, if they don't have a season, I'm going to be crushed because this Saints team is just it's ready, it's ready to go, and the and, and the NFC South there, it's just going to be fun, right? You got Matt Ryan, you got Brady, you got Gronk, it's just going to be amazing. Fun. You got Bridgewater in Carolina, it's just going to be fun to have those games, and I want them because I'm a football addict. So, by the way, I want that too. <laughs> Although I think the Rams, given the fact that they are in the kind of reload process, would probably do be just fine waiting out a year. But when it comes to the Saints team and their division itself, where do they stand? We, we know Tampa Bay is on the rise. Carolina, I don't know what to think of them right now at this point. I don't know what to think of Carolina. And Atlanta is so up and down. You never know what to get from them either. So where are they within this division? I mean, is I there competition say, for them? I would, I would say the Saints are clearly the best team in the NFC South. I would say I would say Tampa is number two. Uh, and Carolina and, and Atlanta, I really don't know what's going to happen to them. I like Teddy Bridgewater. I was kind of sad that he went to Carolina. I was hoping he would go to like an AFC team, and then I, they could, I could adopt that team as my AFC team, and I could root for Teddy because he was, he, was, he's, he was good. He was fun. Like we loved him. He get, he went five and zero. Oh, why would you not? But so, but the thing about it, the thing to me in the, in, the, in the South, really, if you want to talk about other teams, Derek is the wild card to me is Atlanta because I think there's a case to be made that Atlanta, if everything fell right, they could be eleven and five and get a bye and be really good, or they could be two and seven and Dan Quinn could get fired. Like. They have a variance that many teams in the NFL do not have. Carolina, I think Carolina is going to be really interesting on offense. Their defense is going to be trash. Like they got rid of Keekley retired. They got rid of a bunch. Do they draft it? Their entire draft was all defense, right? But this year, especially, I don't know that you can count on rookies to give you much. Like maybe your first round pick or whatever your first pick is, but without mini camps, without off season, with with training camp being weird, I don't think you're gonna be able to say, well, we're gonna get great play from like four rookies. Like it's not gonna happen. So Carolina's gonna be a 
dumpster fire on defense. But they have Joe Brady, LSU guy, uh, Teddy Bridgewater. They have McCaffrey. They have Moore at receiver. Um, and Tampa, I think, will be interesting too because are they going to be? Is Tampa going to be like that nine and seven team that like everybody at the end of the year is going to be like, God dang it, we got to play Tampa in the first round, and they just they're, they're they've won five in a row or something, you know? Um, but the NFC South, as far as interesting division i would put it up there with probably you guys in the west and maybe the afc east just because with the patriots with brady being gone in theory the afc east opens up to not having the patriots just lord over everybody do you see a championship this year for the saints I do. I mean, I, I think I think it will happen. Um, you know, it just it, you know it just look in 2018. You guys got a Super Bowl because they they the, like every referee on the field missed a pass interference call. Y'all go to the Super Bowl. I think you know if, if that call's different. I think the Saints get another week of rest. Their offensive line heals up a little bit better, and I think they would have. I think they would have steamrolled New England in the Super Bowl. I really believe that because that New England team, their one weakness was guarding the running back out of the backfield. Camaro would have just been MVP. But like that's what happens, right? It's just luck of the draw. And you guys, this past year, y'all went nine and seven, but like a couple of bounces here or there, you would have been in the playoffs, right? So football, football is just football is the most random of all the freaking sports, in my opinion. Like you, you could, you could, you could redo. The 2019, the 2019 season, 100 times, and I think you'd get 97 different outcomes. Whereas, like, basketball or baseball, the, the outcomes are pretty stable. Um, so it just depends. I mean, the th- I, I, do see, I do see a championship for the, to this team because I think, and the final thought is, they, Derek, the thing is with the Saints, they've had this team for four years. Like, you know, we talk about a team, their window opens up, right? And you guys are the same thing. You, you, you had golf on the low contract, and you were, you were good in 18. You were good in 19. You, you slowed down a little bit last year, and now you're kind of in the reset mode, trying to re- reload and all that. The Saints, they had their awesome draft in 2017, and they've gone 11-5, and 13-3, and 13-3. and three. This is sort of the last hurrah of this group, because now they got to pay. They're going to have to make decisions on a ton of guys to pay. Kamara and, and Marcus Williams and Ramchek and Lattimore. You know, and Demario Davis, they have a ton of guys that need to get paid and they probably can't pay them all. Andrew Reese is probably his final year. So this is like the last hurrah of this group. But at the same time, they've been together for three. This will be the, the year four. So I don't think the Saints need as much practice and getting acquainted and getting on the same page because they're ready to roll because they've been doing it for three years. So I think that puts them at a distinct advantage to other teams that are trying to find their way and trying to rebuild and trying to retool and hey, we got to fix the offensive line, and we got to do this. The Saints are a ready-made product, ready to go on sort of their last ride to try to get a championship for this group that they've had together for four years. And I think you're so right about the about the sport itself too. Going back to that championship game, you know, if that face mask call is made on Jared Goff. In 2018, that game could have been even different than how it did turn out. We don't. Yeah, it changes so quickly. That game, that game, like the Saints, they one of the most underrated things in that game is Ben Watson couldn't go because appendicitis, and Josh Hill got a concussion on the second series, I believe. And what that did is that made it impossible for the Saints to block Sue 
on and, and block on the edges, they couldn't run the ball. They couldn't run the ball worth a damn. And it was because they were out of tight ends, right? So it's just like random, complete things that happen in, in, in these games that is one and done, right? It's 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 completely different. And 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 the thing is now, Derek, with COVID, like what if the Saints are playing the Rams in the playoff game, right? And the Rams are freaking amazing. But oh, Jalen Ramsey, he tested positive for COVID nineteen. And he's been the he's got he had eight interceptions and he's been amazing. He's been shutting down the side of the field like Daryl Revis at his peak. And no, by the way, he can't he can't go. He can't go in the playoff game, and we're not and we're not postponing the playoff game to help the Rams. So you're SOL. Like those are things that you just we cannot. We can you can't you can't you can't plan for that. You can't predict that. So I think this year, this year, you could tell me any team wins the Super Bowl, and I'd be like, eh, maybe. Like it's just it's just gonna be it's gonna be chaos in a way that I don't think I don't think we're ready for it. Because our mind can't process it because we've never experienced football with a pandemic hanging over our head. All right, Ralph. So, hey, thanks for coming on the show today. I know you got to go. Can you let people know where they can find you on social media, where they can find the podcast, and all that jazz? Yeah, just search Saints Happy Hour Podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast. We're a Saints podcast, but we do have amazing guests. We had Mina Kynes. We had Bomani Jones. We have John. We had John Isner to the tennis grade. He's a Panther fan. We had Wendell Pierce from The Wire. Like we have amazing guests. Even if you're not a Saints fan and you're listening to this podcast because you're a Rams fan, check us out for the interviews we do. We do. We have. We just bust ass and get amazing interviews. Wherever you find your podcast, just search Saints Happy Hour and search Saints Happy Hour. You can find us on any social media. Uh, Derek, I appreciate you having us on. Well, we thank you. Great conversation. Hopefully, we can have that conversation again this year in maybe before a playoff game. That would be great. I love it. I hope so. All right. Have a great one. Thank you. There are a lot of people high on the Saints. Just as many people who are high on the Bucks, though. I don't see this as being one of those seasons for the Saints. I, I, I think they are going to luck out by having a rather... Uninteresting division. I don't think the Panthers are ready yet. I think that Atlanta's just, well, they're Atlanta. I mean, they got weapons, but they're just something not there about them. And Tampa Bay is relying on the arm of Tom Brady. Listen, as much as we all think Tom Brady is one of the best quarterbacks in the league, I've also watched him play in the last two years and know that he's not the same guy he was 10 years ago. So I am not sold on Tampa Bay. They have other weaknesses as well. I don't think this is a, as great a division as people are making it out to be. So all, with all that in mind, I don't know what to expect from the Saints. I do know that Drew Brees has a lot to overcome with his leadership gaffes in the offseason. And Drew Brees is no spring chicken either. This team has fallen short at critical times in the last two years. And I don't know if this is the year for them. I just don't. They, I mean, as much as they made this big deal out of the Rams championship game in the NFC, they blew that game. In last season, they never seemed to have it right at all. They just never did. So I don't see this being this walk in the park for the Saints. If they get to the playoffs, if they play well and have a great record, I think there are going to be some more battle-tested teams there ready to face them, and that's what we saw last year. I don't see the Saints making it all the way, and who knows if they make it out of their division. But all that in mind, there are other teams for our show tonight. Nick Dory from the Bleeding 
Blue podcast. Really good guy. I really enjoyed talking with him. The Giants are a team the Rams will see this year. They are a team that I believe is on the up and up. I think those years of 6 and 10s and 4 and 12s and 5 and 11s are over. I, they're on the right path. They're probably a year away. But here we go. I a story from the Bleeding Blue podcast talking about the New York Giants. And I would actually like to see this become one of those great NFL rivalries. They've had some great games in the past. Here we go. All right, folks, here for the next installment of the Rams Talk Radio tour around the league. Our Giants representative this time is Nick Isidori, a.k.a. Snacks, from the Bleeding Blue Giants podcast. First time on the tour with us. Nick, how are you, man? I'm doing well, but I'm doing well. Um, I'm very happy to be on. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I... I've done something like this yet, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to it on our Bleeding Blue podcast. We we kind of dive into Giants history, so getting to talk about maybe the current Giants now is uh, something that I'm very excited to do. So I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thanks a lot. And th- this this is our third year running doing this, so you know this is something that we want to do because every year teams change, and right, a team can be in the bottom and rise to the top the next year, and we wouldn't know it from where we are. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't see it coming. So this is our chance to get knee deep with those who are watching the team as much as we watch our team. And getting right into it now, where are the Giants? Like, where are the Giants in their rebuild, in your view? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, so there's two sides of the spectrum. I think offensively, they are really on the right path. They just, we saw what Daniel Jones could do last year. And I think um, with a better offensive line, they beefed it up with Andrew Thomas and Matt Pert uh, in the first and third rounds trying to secure both tackle spots. Kevin Zeitler is a former All-Pro. Will Hernandez has big upside at left guard. So I think bolstering that that offensive line is only going to improve Jones' ball security. You know what Saquon can do. If you can get a healthy Evan Ingram, that's icing on the cake. Um, Darius Slayton was a beautiful surprise last year, coming out in the fifth round from Auburn. Um, Showed big play potential. Shepard is a guy I love in the slot. Obviously, he has to stay... um, he has to stay healthy, too, and Golden Tate is a yak machine. So offensively, I think they're going in the right direction. Defensively, however, is a big concern. Um, they lack a pass rush. Marcus Golden looks like he's back on his way um, to the team. He had 10 sacks for us last year. But outside of that, there's really nothing to write home about. Everybody's young, which is good. Um, but translating that, that youth and talent into performance on the field is going to be uh, – in my opinion, the key of the season. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the youth we have on defense, um, but it does have to translate. So I would say we're still bordering in the middle. I, I think we're going to see a, an improvement from last year and the last few years, but still, uh, still ways to go. Help me on Daniel Jones here because I got. I was, I was one of the many who scoffed at the idea of the Giants going and getting Daniel Jones. I thought it was a ridiculous move. Did he, in your view, prove everybody wrong in terms of potential as a franchise quarterback last year? Yeah, he did. And I, I think he was in a, in a miserable situation, a miserable coaching staff. Um, I, again, a miserable offensive line. You have Nate Solder's corpse playing left tackle. Like, that's it's not ideal. We saw how badly he played. Saquon missed four games. He didn't start one game under center with all the weapons I mentioned before on the field at the same time. So I think what he did... You know, as the sixth-round pick coming in, and, it, and it, people forget, too, that was a tough situation. Eli Manning is a legend with the New York Giants. And 
taking over for him in, in just week three of what everybody thought was Eli's last year was an awkward situation and one that is extremely difficult. So for me, somebody like you who was not exactly thrilled that that was the selection my team made, um, I think he hit it out of the park and he met every expectation. Well, he exceeded every expectation that I had for him in his first year. So I'm uh, just hoping that he builds on that and takes, takes a leap in year two. So Dave Gettleman, the GM over there, was a guy who took a lot of heat from that draft. Yeah. And now a year later, it looks like this team is coming around, the franchise coming around. How do you evaluate him coming off, well, the garbage rep he had leaving Carolina? Right. Um, and it's funny. Everybody's like, oh, well, he built a Super Bowl contender in Carolina. No, he didn't. When he got there, all those pieces, Cam Newton, Luke Kuechly, all those guys were there. And um, I love Saquon. He's an amazing talent. But to me, where they took him at number two is a terrible pick. So right off the bat, he started on the bad foot for me. And he made Nate Solder the highest paid tackle in football. He's done a lot of things that just are not good. They're not well-constructed team rebuilding. A rebuilding team needs. So I'm very indifferent. I like a lot of the guys he's drafted um, in his three drafts. But again, we still have to see some of them take a step. And this is a big year. Like if they if they're not if they're not competing in games, if they don't win seven, eight games, they're not kind of in it towards the end of the year. He's gone. Like this is by far the final straw. So I don't want to sit here and say I hate Dave Gettleman and the job he's done, because I do think he's infused this team with a lot of youth and a lot of talent. Um, But I am not by any means a fan of, of Dave Gettleman at all. So this is. This year is the litmus test. We'll see. We will see. I, I'm rooting for him. Like I'm because obviously that means the Giants are good if he stays on. So rooting for him, but I can't say that my confidence is exactly high in him. Right, so then looking at the Giants in their coaching staff right now, changes have been made. Oh my gosh, you don't even know where to start with the Giants. Oh my God. And let me also just give personally, you know, my dad's a Giants fan, and yeah. And um, he has his, his thoughts on all this. Me watching Giants football the last 10 years, I think they've squandered a lot. For a team that's won two Super Bowls in the last 20 years, they have squandered so much in terms of yep. what they should be as a, as a, I consider the Giants a legacy franchise. Yep. And a le- this should be a go-to destination for any NFL head coach out there. And yet, the Giants... Had, to me, haven't been the Giants. They, they no. a division that's been winnable year in and year out for them, and they've underachieved. So, all that in mind, evaluating this coaching staff now, where they're going, how do you feel about it? I, I got to say that I mean, you hit the nail on the head for for such a legendary organization and, and you know just a legendary franchise. Uh, the last ten years have been brutal, um, really, really bad. They've had top six picks the last three years. That's that's not what New York Giants football should be. But uh, I will say, clearly, Joe Judge was not my first choice because I had no idea who he was. No one did. Um, but listening to him talk and the way he presents himself and kind of figuring out what his philosophies are and the fundamentals that he wants to bring in, I'm very excited. Like his, if you, went, if you watched his uh, opening press conference, his introductory press conference, as a Giant fan, you wanted to run through a wall. You heard everything you wanted to hear. He gave you that confidence. No, and everybody's like, oh, he's coming from Belichick, and Belichick's coaches don't have success elsewhere. I, I get it, but that, that's a false narrative in my opinion. He also came from, from Nick Saban. So he's had two of the greatest football coaches ever as his mentors, so I think that can only help. Now, you mentioned that the whole, the whole 
coaching staff is revamped. Jason Garrett comes in, and we all know what a disaster of a head coach he was. But he doesn't get enough credit for developing guys like Tony Romo and Dak Prescott into franchise quarterbacks. So I think without the head coaching responsibilities lying on his back, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think he could be a productive and uh, a good offensive coordinator, especially for Daniel Jones. The one thing that I'm not very excited about, maybe because I don't know too much about him, and I know there was a couple other candidates on the market that I really wanted for defensive coordinator, and we hired Patrick Graham, who gets rave reviews, but he didn't really strike me as somebody like that you've seen results from. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So uh, defense, like I said in the beginning, that has so many question marks and so much young talent that needs better coaching. I, I just my excitement level there is not yet. So, if, but if Judge Joe Judge hired him, who I have confidence in, then I'm going to I'm going to wait and see how it all plays out before I rush to judgment. So, you know, looking at the staff here, I, I would be concerned outside Jason Garrett in terms of if you're building. I look at I look at it kind of like with, with Sean McVay for the Rams. He's the youngest coach in the league by far when he's hired. They put Wade Phillips at defensive coordinator around him. They've got Bones they, you know, for um, Bones Fossil at his special teams. And he had people who have been there right. and done that and worn the t-shirt. And I don't see that as much here with the Giants staff when you have a new guy coming in there. Jason Garrett, who, like you mentioned, struggles at the coaching position. But you know what? He developed some guys. He did. Uh, and where, I would have... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to just kind of put my words around here. When you look at the staff, can they do the job in a place like New York? New York playing New York's like unlike any place in the NFL. Not an easy place. And you've seen two head coaches in Ben McAdoo and Pat Shermer get ran out of town real quick because once something goes bad, it's you got you got seven different newspapers between. New York and New Jersey that are coming after you and every hit piece is after you. The media is like unlike anywhere else. So I would have really preferred like I Garrett. Yes, he has the head coaching experience. Um, He's been in the playoffs. He's been successful. But I think that's those are more so due to the players, not so much his tactical head coaching approach. So I I like that. But on the defensive side, like a guy like Wade Phillips, like you said, with, with Sean McVay, that is so perfect. A guy like that. Who could have came in? And I'm pretty sure he's a free agent, right? Like, you know, free Wait, agent. Wait, yeah. Yeah, and that's a, that's a guy I, I, I personally, he was my first choice. Because I've seen what he has done with, with the Rams defense a few years ago, with, with defenses, with, with the Broncos, and, and everything like that. The, the man knows defense. And if you bring in two head coaching guys like that on both sides of the ball, that's going to alleviate a lot of pressure on Joe Judge. He's got two guys. He get bounce ideas off of and whatnot. So Jason Garrett being that only kind of guy to get that advice from and stuff um not the most ideal thing and we also hired freddie kitchens as our tight end coach and that didn't work out very well um in cleveland so uh i am totally in agreement with you that i wish they kind of added some more veteran head coaching experience on the staff but we will see i'm looking at the the giants now going into the nfc east philadelphia which honestly they've been talented like since the super bowl when they've been just as talented as they yeah. were before some holes, but what team doesn't have holes? Dallas is, and then you have the Washington, whoever they are. <laughs> so yeah, I'm looking yeah, at these. Can't say the R word. <laughs> the, yeah, four teams here to me that aren't that far apart, at least performance wise. Where are the Giants in your view in their division? And talent wise, 
can they be where you want them to be two, three years from now? I think, I think division-wise division right now, I'd put them third. Um, I do think Philly and, and Dallas are, are better teams, obviously, and they have, um, they have two head coaches that have experience. McCarthy, all this time spent with, with Green Bay, and then Peterson is probably his fourth or fifth year with, with the team now. Um, but you gotta, you got to worry about a few things. Carson Wentz can't stay healthy. He just can't. So that has to be a factor. Dak Prescott, while good, how great is he? That defense lost Byron Jones. Their secondary is very weak. So their defense has a lot of question marks. And them too, you know, new system with McCarthy coming in could be difficult. But in three, four years from now, I do think with the proper coaching and the, the offensive line that is young and the offensive weapons that are young and Daniel Jones showing promise, that the defense catches up to the Giants offense, if that makes sense. Because they're going to have a ton of cap space to spend in the offseason. You're going to be able to bring in guys who can make an impact on the defensive side of the football. And you do have talented young guys. Listen, I have not missed a snap of the Giants in my whole life since I can remember being able mm-hmm. to understand and watch football. I know that there are plenty of talented young players on this defense that are going to be exciting to watch. And they're going to make a difference. They're going to make plays. They just need better coaching. Our defensive schemes last year were just abysmal. A, a bit like I could have coached that defense better. So I think in a three to four year window, we are going to see a Giants team that that is back. And I'm not saying that in a biased way. There's just enough young talent infused in this team right now that I think in I think in two years, not not this year, 2021 is when I really think you're going to start seeing them compete for for division titles again. So I until then, I'm going to hold my breath and wait for the best. But I do think the future is finally, finally, finally looking looking bright for the Giants. So you mentioned, of course, you're really guys are really into the Giants history part as well. So I got to ask, that's what that's what we were founded on. We we were founded basically covering the Rams history. But that was a mm-hmm. big part of who we were uh, when the team goes from Cleveland to L.A. to St. Louis back to L.A. Oh. History gets lost, especially when they went to St. Louis. So that's why we were created. So you know, I have to ask a history question. I would love you. Uh, so to. here that's, you go. Here you it. go. Out of well, I can ask two. Out of Accepting the Super Bowls because those are those are the easy those are the easy fruit and you know the yeah. low fruit answers. Okay, so yeah. of course greatest game in Giants history outside of those two Super Bowls. Oh wow, okay, that is a fantastic question, and I would say the best game that I've watched the Giants play not in the Super Bowl was actually does, now. Does this count? Hold on, does this? I will prep. I thing. was. I think I know where you're going already. Does a <laughs> playoff game from the Super Bowl year count? <laughs> No, that that counts. I was I was thinking you're going to 1958 and Johnny Unitas and said oh, oh, death well, game. Oh, okay. Well, see, if I was alive for that, I would that would have obviously been a slam dunk. But then again, we we lost that game, so you know that's kind of it's true. Tough to, um, but without a doubt, um, just the most on edge I've ever been for a football game was the 2012 NFC Championship game against the 49ers in San Francisco where Eli dropped back 54 times, and literally, I think he got hit on every single time he threw the ball. I don't know. There's a, there's a, picture, um, there's a picture of Eli getting up off the turf with, like, grass in his helmet, his shoulder pads off. The guy just got beaten and bullied all game, and he hung in there, made big throw after big throw. It was, I think the final score was 23-20 or 24-20, something of that, of that ilk, and we won. Um, and in a, what was it, a last second field goal, like 31 yards or something like that after 
after the punt returner fumbled it. It was if the game had everything. San Francisco's first possession, Vernon Davis goes 75 yards up the sideline for a touchdown. I'm like, well, it was a good run, okay? Right off the bat, you think it's over. You come back, you fight, fight, fight. You go down in the fourth quarter. Then you give up the lead. Just a whole, whole seesaw worth of emotion. So uh, I, w- I will say that that is definitely atop my list as the best Giants game I have watched. So Outside of two Super <laughs> outside of two Super Bowls. I, I, I want to throw this out there because I, I think, and I want to hear the Giant perspective on this as well. Eli Manning. If you talk to any average Joe fan or really just say the words Eli Manning, one of the things I hear the most about him was overrated. Mm-hmm. When two certain roles, I don't view him that way. And the reason why I don't view him that way is because the guy had the crap beat out of him for most of his career, had no offensive line. We'll never know how good he could have been had he actually had a strong offensive line for most of his career. We didn't have his brother had a great offensive line for almost all his entire yep. career. Yes, and so I think it's a really tough a comparison for him. But given that he won two Super Bowls, given the numbers he still put up, even though they weren't great at times, uh, given the fact he wasn't that mobile, to know what yep. he still what he was able to do behind garbage, hot garbage of an offensive line for almost his entire career, I I think he's underappreciated. Uh, what would you say to that sentiment? I, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you, because I try to defend him more than probably anybody I know. And you said you've been watching the Giants for 10 years because really, your dad's a Giants fan. So most people that, that form this under uh, overrated opinion, nothing special, all that jazz, didn't watch him play for 16 years, didn't watch all the games, didn't realize just how miserable of a situation he was in. Over the last 10 years of his career, his offensive line has ranked Bottom of the league, like not like not like 17, 18, not legitimately like 25 and worse. So you got you got to realize that if you're not a mobile quarterback and you're a pocket passer, you need more than half a second <laughs> to yeah. throw the football. And people always forget. And listen, he was not. I'm not sitting here saying he's the Drew Breeses and the Aaron Rodgers and stuff like that. But he was never, he's never a bum. He may have had a bad year, led the league in interceptions twice. I get all of that. But he had a special 2011 season. He was consistently, he was, and you know, the biggest thing about him, he was consistently there. Your best ability is your availability. He didn't miss a game due to injury mm-hmm. once. Not once. He kept the Giants in most of every football game that he could with no talent, nothing. He is absolutely underappreciated. And I think, Based on beating the best football dynasty we will ever see, the greatest coach and the greatest quarterback, not doing it once, doing it twice, that cements his legacy, man. That's, that's a Hall of Fame quarterback. Hall of Fame quarterbacks in the Hall of Fame right now are in there with less accomplishments than Eli Manning. And he's top 10 in about three or four different uh, quarterback categories. So I don't want to hear it, okay? I don't want to hear the overratedness with Eli Manning. I will defend him till my grave. I do want to point out, yes, it's really important to remember, he was, he, the Giants were the team that ended the Patriots' undefeated run. And we all know that if there's one thing that unites every freaking NFL fan out there, it's our hatred for the Patriots. So, absolutely. I mean, as a two-time Super Bowl loser, we understand that. <laughs> so, who is your greatest Giant of all time, in your opinion? Okay, so I am going to, I'm going to go in my lifetime. 
because if I was going all the time, I didn't get to watch him, unfortunately. Lawrence Taylor, to me, is probably the greatest football player ever. Um, just the way he literally changed the way offenses look at a defensive player and the way offenses look at overall offensive schemes and putting the importance on the left tackle. But the greatest giant, I, I'm not going to say Eli because he wasn't, talent-wise, he wasn't the best. My favorite and my most appreciated giant, but the best giant I saw was Michael Strahan. Um, for every single year I was alive, every single year that I have watched Giants football that he was on the team, he was the Giants' best player. He was a dominant, dominant defensive end. Double-digit sacks every year. He has the single-season all-time sack record. There was nothing he couldn't do. And people don't realize, or they forget, how good of a run defender he was, too. He just wasn't a, one, uh, a one-dimensional defense end rushing the quarterback, sacking the passer. He stopped the run all the time. Teams didn't run to his side of the field. That's how good he was. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did get to see him play. Unfortunately, I'm a little older. That's very sad. But anyways, you look- I, I got to see him play. And um, that actually is one of my biggest memories as Rams fans, the 1989 divisional playoff game between the Rams and the Giants. Flipper Anderson in the tunnel to win the game in overtime. 1913, the Rams had multiple players who were injured the week before. Um, of course, the Rams go on to the championship game and get destroyed <laughs> by the four yards of the fam sack. But that's one of the legendary games of Rams history, the title game for us. Going down the middle, let's yeah. tell Yep. Flipper Anderson, great moment. So, I mean, I, that's a good memory. Not, not you know, losing in the Super Bowl is never, never easy. Um, but that's not, not a, not a bad game to, to hold your hat on as a Rams fan. I guess Super Bowl. We know we don't, we don't have the Giants yeah, right now in terms of five Super Bowls, but you know, you had the, the greatest show on turf, which should have won more than more than one. Just saying, but well, you know, if they weren't an know. inept organization at, yes. at the upper echelon, then they would have. Yeah. They should have. They, they should have. Really that's like I when I first saw. I, I don't really care. I'm 27. I was born in '93. The first memory, my first memory of football, is that Rams and Titans Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And I just remember re- thinking to myself, "Wow, this is this is so awesome." And then I started realizing it more and more as I watched down the line, and then I you know Super Bowl after Super Bowl. Um, that 2000, what was it? 2001 Super Bowl. That year alone. Uh, when they lost to New England, but that year alone was just unheard of. Like Tory Holt and um, oh my gosh, I. But uh, well, obviously Marshall Falk. Who's the other receiver? I can't think of Isaac, Isaac Bruce. Bruce, Hall of Famer now. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Well deserved. Those guys were unbelievable. The greatest show on turf was was unlike anything I, I've seen, and they were like ahead of their time too, just throwing the ball all over the field. Um, like if they were all in their prime in today's NFL. I don't, they, they might be the Kansas City Chiefs. You know what I mean? That's how good they would be with those weapons and, and how good Kurt Warner was for them. So, um, I mean, come on. You, you've definitely seen some, some, some pr- pretty solid teams. Obviously, you should have seen a few more Super Bowls, but well, I mean, it I, hasn't been too bad. And, and the Giants were always a team that gave us the biggest problems, too. I mean, the Giants, you know, beat up, beat the crap out of Kurt Warner as a Ram numerous times. And, and I, I look back at the giant, those Giants games with the Rams during that era and think, man, gosh, they, they, they yeah. physically, would, actually- they, they found the way to really hurt the Rams. But they should have won more than one. Definitely. They, they should have. And, and that's okay. And just one quick thing about the, the Giants-Rams dynamic. Um, I was at a game a few years ago when the Rams, I think it was probably the Rams Super Bowl year, um, two years ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
when they came to MetLife against the Giants mm-hmm. and absolutely obliterated us. So all of those hard feelings you had for us and the tough, the tough games we gave you back then, you made up for it in that game because that was <laughs> brutal. I left in like the second quarter. It was that bad. We were down like 34 points in the second quarter. It was awful. Awful. And if I remember awful. correctly, coming in that game, it had been, I think it had been darn close to over a decade since the Rams had beaten the Giants. And so for us over wow. here, we were like, finally, it was like, take, yeah. you know, just stick it in, inject this game over and over again. For And I had a student at the time, I'm a teacher, who is a Giants fan. And I, the first thing I did when he came to class next morning, I pulled up NFL.com and had the Rams Giants highlights going just for him. And <laughs> he just Man, took wow. it into his, he, he took it well. But Good for him. You know, he took it well. I, I can res- I can, I can respect that. I and I, I I you know that's you, you caught us you caught us at the right time. Okay, we weren't we were still really <laughs> bad. You know, Eli Manning was on his last legs. Everything was was just complete and utter disaster. So take take all the accolades you want from it. Take that take that butt whooping. Take it. Enjoy it. Okay. Next time we play. Actually, I think we play this year, don't we? Did we yep. I was about to say, hey, we um, would ask you to come on back for, for the Week 4 matchup preview of that game with us. I would um, love that. We have no idea, even if there will be a game at this point, but if yeah. there is a game... <laughs> um, let's, let's pray. Let's, let's you know, pray. But the, the Rams are at a crossroads right now as they, as they, as they are reshuffling the roster. We, we think they're reloading. The way they, the way they develop talent's very good, but yeah. they're probably... It's, this year's probably not their year. 2021 is what we're looking towards. And the Giants, I'm very interested, so I can't wait for that one. Can Actually, Nick, that'll be a fun I, I think it'll be fun. Snacks, can you let people know where they can find you, they can find your podcast, and anything have to do with your work? Yeah, absolutely. would love to. Um, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Snacks underscore BDGE. That's, the, um, that's the, the media company that I, I'm uh, fully affiliated with. I'm also on another podcast that we talk about fantasy football. And stuff, and then, but my, my real passion is the New York Giants, and that's where um, me and my co-host Justin Pennick, who uh, obviously reached out to us, and um, I, I told him that I wanted to come on because I wanted to talk current Giants football. So um, I was grateful he let me do that. But you can follow us at Bleeding Blue. It's at Bleeding underscore Blue. Um, if you do Giants fans, if you you're interested in Giants history, we we cover we cover everything from. Um, like Wellington Mar games to, to to Bill Parcells era, um, everything. So uh, we and we something else we do we we go back and we rewatch old games that were that were meaningful to us and whatnot, um, and then we kind of break them down and give our thoughts on them many years later and some of the players that were on the teams back then. Um, so it's a lot of fun, and you guys can find us there. And um, I mean, I had a blast here. I, I really hope that we do have a season. And, um, and you shoot me shoot me a message. I come back on. You got it. We'd love to have you. All right, folks, there you go. Snacks for the Bleeding Blue Podcast. We're out of here. All right, I got the Giants finishing third in the NFC East this year. Uh, they got a lot more going for them right now than I, th- I think the Redskins do. The Redskins have talent, but that whole organization is a trade wreck. I just call them the Redskins for crying. They're, they're was- the Washington football team. They're not even the Redskins. They're the Washington football team. So. Oops. Listen, that team is a hot mess. So the Giants already have an edge there. I'm looking at them finishing third. They're not going to be, I think, a threat to the Eagles or the Cowboys this year, but they're going to give some teams problems. They have a lot, a lot 
they've made up for in the last couple of years in the draft. Keep an eye on the Giants moving forward. Okay, and finally, Brandon Lee Gowton from Bleeding Green Radio. Again, one of the legendary podcasts out there for NFL. We have, over the years, tried our best to model ourselves out for what they have done. They've come back from numerous, numerous controversies, and they always find a way through. Okay, here we go. Brandley Gowton from, from Bleeding Green Radio covering the Philadelphia Eagles. All right, folks, I'm here with Brandon Lee Gowden from Bleeding Green Radio. This guy is pretty much a legend when it comes to Philadelphia Eagles podcasting, manager and editor-in-chief of Bleeding Green. How you doing, Brandon? Derek, always a pleasure to join you. I have to apologize from the top in that this has taken way too long. You've tried to, we've tried to get this together way sooner, and uh, I've been a terrible guest, and I've taken way too long, but I'm glad to be finally talking with you here. We're glad you're here, and I think everybody gets a mulligan this year, because 2020 has been epically bad. Uh, Everybody (laughs) gets a mulligan. It's just a crazy nightmare, just trying to get things done, but you know what? But you know what? We're here now, and we got a lot of Eagle stuff to talk about. This is a team that I find very interesting for various reasons, and I you got a franchise quarterback there. I'm going to start right away with Carson Wentz. What is the deal here with him? Do you feel as confident with him as you did two years ago when we talked concerning Carson Wentz? Yeah, my confidence in Carson Wentz is pretty high, especially after watching what he did at the end of 2019 when really he uh, he just answered a lot of questions. He, he silenced a lot of the doubters that were out there. A lot of people said Carson Wentz wasn't clutch. Okay, well, in four straight must-win must games at the end of the season, he wins them all. And he's doing it with like practice squad guys at wide receiver, like no-name guys. So he really put the team on his back. Now, it was against bad teams, but again, he's doing this with like sub-NFL, like fringe NFL talent um, for him to really elevate the team around him. I mean, that's what a franchise quarterback does, ideally. And he did that, and he showed improvement. Uh, obviously didn't finish the season the way you would like to see. Gets that cheap shot to the back of the head from Jadavion Clowney, and yeah, it gets hurt again. But I think when you look at his injuries, and I had a uh, a doctor on from Fantasy Points, uh, Dr. Edwin Porras, uh, to talk about Carson Wentz's injury history earlier this offseason on BGN Radio. And basically the way he broke it down for me and, and kind of explains it well is that you know Carson Wentz's injury history isn't so indicative of him being injury prone as as much as he's had a lot of just unlucky things happen to him. It's not like he has these uh, like these recurring kind of injuries as much of like it was a wrist and then it was a concussion and then it was uh, the ACL and then the back was still related from the ACL because that hadn't healed yet. So uh, I am still very confident in his outlook. I think the bigger issue when I'm looking at Carson Wentz, isn't so much with him as much as his supporting cast. It's like, okay, so basically Carson Wentz has had to deal with the worst wide receiving core in the NFL for two out of his four seasons. There was also a season in there where I think you can say the Eagles had the worst running back rotation in the league in 2018. Like, to me, before you're going to criticize Carson Wentz, like, criticize the front office for not giving him adequate help. Now, I know franchise quarterbacks are supposed to elevate the talent around them, as I said earlier. But yes, you also have to give them like a threshold of talent to work with. And I don't think the Eagles have met that bar in half of his NFL season so far. So they failed him. And I think the Eagles need to do a better job at supporting Carson Wentz. It's interesting you say that because we face a similar kind of dilemma here in that 
with the Rams in 2018, 2019, uh, Jared Goff, 2017, even all those numbers, all those numbers there were great until, well, Todd Gurley gets hurt in 2018. And then we see teams adjust, we see pass rushes change, we see an offensive line start to break down the end of 2018, carries over in 2019, where our front office didn't do its job in getting things done when it comes to offensive line. And all of a sudden, Jared Goff's numbers go down. And everybody's, what's wrong with Jared Goff? Jared Goff's a punk, Jared Goff's this, Jared Goff's that. But you know what? If you're going to put an offensive line out there that's garbage, if you're, if you're not going to have the right weapons for him in the running game, then all of a sudden, any quarterback's going to look pedestrian. So here you have Carson Wentz with no wide receiver core, no running backs, and all of a sudden, bam, he's not looking like you want to look, and then you're going to put fingers at him? It doesn't make sense to me either. So how do the Eagles address those weapons? So the Eagles made an effort this offseason to get Carson Wentz more speed around him, which was sorely needed. The Eagles have really had one of the slowest, if not literally the slowest offense in the NFL over the past two years. They, they had no real kind of deep threat in 2018 after Mike Wallace had a season-ending injury early in Week 2. And then last year in 2019, I mean, Deshaun Jackson looked great in Week 1. And he goes off, catches like nine of his 10 targets for something like 150-something yards, two touchdowns. Carson Wentz throwing to him looks like a thing of beauty. looks like it's going to be like, oh, like this is, is going to be a problem for the rest of the league to stop this connection because Carson Wentz has a great arm, and Deshaun Jackson can easily get open down the field at some point during the game. So it felt like there was something promising going there. But, of course, Deshaun Jackson uh, was 32 at the time. He's had injury issues, and at this point now has missed an average of just over five games per season in the last five seasons. So that's always been a concern with him, his availability. And Eagles really had no backup plan. Like once Deshaun Jackson was down, there was no other kind of field stretcher to really uh, replace him. The closest thing they had was Nelson Aguilar, who was literally one of the worst wide receivers in the NFL last year, who was just an abject disaster, who really, in my opinion, made the team actively worse like it wasn't like he just was ineffective it wasn't doing anything he had these like just crucial and just like crushing drops at key moments one in week two where the eagles are about to stage this comeback against the falcons and aglor is wide open hits him right in the hands it just goes through and that ruined what could have been this comeback victory for carson wentz also aglor dropped a, a, a game tying touchdown uh, against the Patriots. So he had a, a ton of just terrible mistakes. And that was your best deep threat behind Deshaun Jackson. So uh, the Eagles made an effort this offseason to rectify that. They're bringing Deshaun back. They drafted Jalen Rager in the first round, who uh, has 4-2 speed. Or at least showed that off at his pro day. Only ran 4-4-9, I believe, or, or somewhere around there at the Combine. And uh, has explosive playability. The Eagles also traded for Marquise Goodwin. Uh, just a swap of late sixth round picks, so no big commitment there. But he's a speedster. Obviously, he literally has like he's one of the fastest people in the world. Four point two kind of Olympian speed. And then they also drafted John Hightower and Quez Watkins on day three. Both again guys who profile as speed wide receivers. Now, you know, did the Eagles overcorrect here? And did they focus on speed too much instead of just talent? I think that's a fair question to ask. But they they sorely needed speed. So. I think that's kind of the biggest thing they did. It's really interesting because wide receiver was such an obvious need for the Eagles heading into this 2020 offseason, but the only significant investment they made was Rager. So that's kind of a criticism I would also levy against the front office is like, okay, have they done enough? Or at least the question I would ask, like, 
did they still do enough for Carson Wentz? Like the speed is nice in theory, but you don't know if you're getting anything out of Marquise Goodwin or day three picks or even Rager in an off season where you know practices are going to be more limited than ever. And he's a rookie. Like you don't know that he can just be the answer all of a sudden. So that's a big question that still has to be answered for the Eagles. What about the rest of the offense? The, the wide receivers, the tight ends, together with the with the running back. That's, I know you talk about the wide receivers in there, but I'm thinking the Eagles almost always have contributors to tight end. What about now? Yeah, so they you know they have one of the best tight end duos, if not the best tight end duo in the league. And Zach Ertz, who is potentially a future Hall of Famer, is a guy who easily just gets open all the time. He's not like George Kittle. You know, he's not this guy who's gonna get the ball and run you over and and be like almost like a wide receiver in that sense, like this dynamic playmaker with the ball in his hands. Um, And he's not going to be like almost an extra offensive tackle like Kittle also is. Uh, But he's just so good. This is Ertz now at at getting open and moving the chains. And there's a big reason why Zach Ertz is Carson Wentz's favorite target because he's just reliable like that. And now Dallas Goddard is kind of more, a little bit more, and obviously not to the same extent of the player that Kittle is, but he's in that mold of a guy who's a little more dynamic uh, with the ball in his hands, can get uh, yards after the catch, definitely a better blocker than Zach Ertz. So those are two really good weapons at tight end there. Now, again, I think the problem is if those are your best two guys, then that's a problem because defense is kind of, kind of key in, the, in on that. And if there's no speed there to stretch the field, like there should be in theory, at least hopefully for the Eagles sake this year, then if they have that speed, then that should open up things underneath for guys like Goddard and Ertz a little bit more and, and help them be more effective. So uh, that's the hope there. And then at running back, the Eagles have Miles Sanders, who they selected in the second round last year. That was a pick that everyone in the organization was basically on board with. It wasn't like one of these things you see um, from time to time, or maybe not even time to time, but annually, where like there's a split in terms of, okay, the, the football guys maybe in the front office liked him, but the analytical guys didn't. Or the coaching staff, you know, really liked him, but the front office didn't. No, this is like a guy that everyone was this, on the same page on with Miles Sanders, and he showed a lot of promise as a rookie. He actually led all rookies in yards from scrimmage. He showed the ability to catch the ball out of the backfield, and not only there, but also make plays down the field. He, Miles Sanders basically was the Eagles' best deep threat, which is very much an indictment of the receiving core. And uh, I think, you know, the potential he showed at the end of last year like he has star potential, star running back potential, and uh, so the tight ends and the running back situation, you know, those are encouraging and uh, things to feel good about. But the wide receiver uh, position, there's still a lot of questions to be answered there. Now, how is the running game looking this year? Um, I think with Sanders leading the way, it should be interesting because the Eagles have never had like the guy at running back. They've always really employed a running back by committee under Doug Peterson. That's kind of just what you see under the Andy Reid style of offense. And uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how much more workload that the Eagles trust with Miles Sanders in year two. I think it will be more. Um, At the same time, you're still going to see some other running backs mixed in there. The Eagles really uh, struck gold with Boston Scott last year, who they signed off the Saints practice squad back late in 2000 and, uh, 2018 season. And last year, he was on the practice squad again until injuries basically forced the Eagles to call him up. And he kind of really... Uh, and then by the end of the season, in week 17, he was freaking NFC Offensive Player of the Week. So uh, he really stepped up as the season went along. Just really 
kind of a guy in the Darren Sproles mold where he's going to catch, again, passes out of the backfield. Um, respectable enough runner, not a guy you're going to trust with, you know, 10 carries a game or so. But he can con- contribute sparingly in there as well. And uh, just just a nice role player to have in offense. And then behind that, um, the Eagles are returning Corey Clement, who had 100 yards for them in Super Bowl 52, a game in which they won. And um, so we'll see if he can make the team. Uh, there's, there's talk that they can add Devonta Freeman or the Sean McCoy, a veteran still. I don't know if they'll go that route. I, I think they still want to do something mm-hmm. at running back just because the depth behind Sanders could be a little bit better. They also have some undrafted rookie free agents they like in Adrian Killens and Mike Warren. And they also signed a guy last year, 2019, late in the season, uh, named Elijah Holyfield, who uh, a lot of draft, uh, big draft network, uh, big draft Knicks, I should say, uh, kind of liked his tape. He just tested terribly uh, ahead of the last year's combine. So um, that was an issue. And But again, the game tape was better. So the Eagles are taking a chance on him too. He could kind of be like, uh, a back in the Jordan Howard mold for the Eagles as a guy who is not really dynamic, but he can kind of get you those tough yards, kind of, you know, uh, really not take losses and be effective in short yardage and red zone situations. So they have enough at running back that, again, there's room to be pretty optimistic, especially with Sanders leading the way at the top. But they, they kind of could afford to add a little bit depth, more depth there, because if Sanders goes down, it's not like they have a guy they can just hand the ball to even like 15 times a game and feel like amazing about it. I hate to knock on wood too, but just to just cover that, I hate to do it, but what if Carson goes down? Are you confident in his backup? Yeah, so I think it's going to be Nate Sudfeld because a lot of people would think it would not be Nate Sudfeld because the Eagles spent the number 53 overall pick on Jalen Hurts in the 2020 NFL draft, which shocked everyone, I think, who watches football. Uh, but I, I don't think Hurts is really going to be the number two guy, at least right away, just because, again, there's there's no real offseason here. Um, and Sudfeld has been in the system now uh, since September 2017. And I just think he, uh, he also hasn't played ex- uh, extensively at all, but he has played somewhat in the NFL. He, he started or he played most of a game in week 17 in 2017. He also had some week 17 snaps uh, back in 2018. And he's also played in the preseason a bit. And obviously Hertz hasn't had any of that and he's not going to play in the preseason because there will be no preseason games this year. So I think Sudfeld is that guy. And I don't think Nate Sudfeld is a guy that you feel great about if Carson Wentz goes down for the entire season. I don't think he's coming in and saving uh, or you're really keeping the the ship afloat like Nick Foles did back, you know, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. But I do think if Sudfeld has to start like a game or two, I think you can maybe win one of those two games. I think he has he's shown NFL mobility, NFL uh, arm strength. Um, I think his processing speed could be a little bit better. So he's, I don't, I really don't know that he's really ever going to be a starter. I'm pretty sure he won't be a starter, at least a long term one in the NFL. But I think you can, you can kind of get by with him. I think I trust the Eagles coaching staff to, to put up a good game plan uh, to, to kind of weather the storm. Of course, Wentz only has to miss a couple games, but if he has to miss a lot of time, then yeah, I'm not feeling as good. What about the defense overall? Are you comfortable with, it, with this group? I, I've seen they made some moves this offseason. Very interesting what you guys say about that. Yeah, so Jim Schwartz, I think, is almost underrated as a defensive coordinator. He gets a lot of uh, or I should say he, he can be much maligned in Philly here, but I think that's in part because the standards are so high. When you look at the results, I mean, the Eagles have allowed the fewest points in the NFL at home since he was hired by 
the Eagles in 2016. And I also believe it's just fifth overall, fifth or sixth overall points per game, homer away in that span as well. So, I mean, he's he's one of the league's better defensive coordinators. And he's not perfect, and he has his flaws. But in general, I think he kind of gets more out of lesser talent. And, by the way, I should point out that the past couple of years, the Eagles hadn't been really spending as much on def- on defense. If you look at their, their kind of cap breakdown and what they're investing in, I think they were like in the 20s in defense. So they weren't even spending big money at the, on that side of the ball at all. And Jim Schwartz was still getting like above average at least, or at least average uh, defensive units out of that. So I think you can kind of trust Schwartz to make things work. Now, the Eagles made a really big addition this offseason. They wanted Jalen Ramsey last year. The Rams got him. Uh, they outbid the Eagles offer. And instead, the Eagles ended up with Darius Slay for a third and a fifth. And obviously, they had to pay him like the top quarterback in the NFL. So it came with a contract, too. But um, I think Darius Slay can be a huge addition for this team, assuming he hasn't dropped off and he didn't have his best year last year. And he's turning, or, or he will be, he, I think he'll be 30 after this season, right after this season. So, you know, there's reason to wonder how high of a level he can play at. But if he can still be. You know, Darius Slay, the guy that people know he is as a number one corner. I mean, you look at how the Eagles defense got torched by number one receivers last year. I mean, you, you had like Devontae Adams go off for 180 and he didn't even play the whole game. Uh, you can go down the list. Uh, Terry McLaurin, Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley, Amari Cooper, uh, DK Metcalf, like the Eagles, are, uh, the Vikings receivers, both of them at the time, Diggs and Thielen, like they were getting torched on a regular basis. They were allowing like the most explosive plays in the NFL to have a number one cornerback in Slay, who in theory at least will be able to shadow those guys and limit the damage that they're doing. I think that's huge for the defense. Um, I think there are still a lot of other things to wonder wonder about in terms of like are the edge rushers good enough? Like in terms of I think they're fine, but are they really going to be like elite? I mean that's that's a big projection to make. Um, the Eagles added a lot of beef and money into the interior. They have Fletcher Cox, who's one of the top paid interior defensive linemen. They signed Malik Jackson, who is another last year, who is another top, uh, I think, 15 defensive tackle contract. And then they added Javon Hargrave this offseason, which is a bit of a surprise because he's been playing more in the Steelers 3-4 system and the Eagles really run a 4-3. But he's kind of been miscast there. So there's there's really a thought that Hargrave will kind of be unlocked a little bit more in the Eagles system. And for their sake, they better hope that's true because, you know, they're they're paying this elite money to three defensive tackles. And it seems like they're really counting on having an elite interior rush, which is something the Rams know about, I'm sure, with Aaron Donald there. And they're kind of they're banking on that almost. And I think they're they're counting on that to help out their edge rush. So putting it all together, I would assume you you would say the Dallas Cowboys are probably the team's biggest biggest threat right now in the NFC East. I think the Giants get some time to go, and who knows what's going on in Washington? I mean, really, who knows? So, where do the Eagles sit right now in the NFC East, and how far can this team go? Yeah, it's it's between the Eagles and the Cowboys, like it usually has been the past couple of years. I mean, the Giants, I just think, you know, Joe Judge is a total wild card, and Dave Gettleman, I think, has just done a terrible job with that roster, and I don't understand why I'm supposed to think he's suddenly going to have it fixed. Um, Washington has been a dumpster fire for forever now. 
uh, both on and off the field, of course. And I just I don't buy Haskins at all. I think he really struggled as a rookie. Um, I'm seeing Alex Smith here is, is cleared for recovery, which is insane. I don't know what's going to happen there. But even still, I just I think Washington uh, lacks a lot of talent in places. I mean, you look at their offense, just the depth chart out and outside mm-hmm. of like Terry McLaurin, you just don't feel really great about a lot of what they have there. So uh, I definitely think it's the Eagles at the top in the mix with the Cowboys. It is kind of like one A one B. There hasn't been a repeat. Winner in the NFC East since 2004. I feel like I probably say that to you every time I come on this podcast in the offseason. And it's still true because the Eagles won last year. And now we'll see if they can repeat. Uh, History would say no. And I think Dallas had a really good draft. They they added CeeDee Lamb, which is just really big for an offense that was already great. And I kind of think about how, okay, the Eagles have Darius Slay now. They can cover Amari Cooper. But uh, who's covering CeeDee Lamb? And then Michael Gallup is still there too. So I definitely think... Uh, the Cowboys have also had some big losses as well, though. I mean, they lose Robert Quinn. They lose Byron Jones. They're, we'll see how Mike McCarthy does. I mean, he obviously flamed out in Green Bay, won the Super Bowl, yeah, but there was also so many Packers teams under him that just underachieved and with one of the best quarterbacks of all time and Aaron Rodgers. So I kind of wonder what he's going to bring there, if he's really going to truly elevate them as much as they're expecting him to. Uh, and and maybe realize that it wasn't really just all Jason Garrett's fault, like they want to believe. So mm-hmm. I definitely think it'll be interesting. I don't think there's a clear cut. I, I, you could ask me today. I'll say the Cowboys are going to win NFC East tomorrow. You, you could ask me tomorrow. I might say the Eagles. It kind of goes back and forth. I think they're both in that same kind of tier of a team in that like they're both good, but they're not elite. They're not like the Saints who are you know winning 13 games year in and year out the past couple of seasons. Um, I just think they're a step below that, but they're both good teams and they could easily both make the playoffs. So I hate to ask this question because the Eagles win, but this is a team that won Super Bowl a couple years back. And since then it's, it, there's been struggles. There's been, as you mentioned earlier, some issues with decisions made in the front office for the, for the roster. At what point does this team get more heat than it already does considering that once you win a Super Bowl, Expectations change, and they've already been high. Already, always been high in Philly. How much yeah, so I think, do they have? Yeah, I, I think they have wiggle room, maybe more than they even should. At least that's my sense. You look at because this is how th- they would frame it. Okay, they won the Super Bowl in 2017. They made the playoffs uh, in 2018 and 2019 as well. Now, to me, I look at that and I I see okay, you guys barely made the playoffs in 2018. You needed like some to win some games down the stretch, and then in week seventeen, you needed the Bears, who had nothing to play for and had their playoff positioning locked up, to beat the Vikings, who were trying to get into the playoffs. Uh, and the Vikings, of course, with Kirk Cousins as he's wont to do, did not show up for a big game, and they helped the Eagles out. But like you know, like I'm just like the point here is that they needed help just to get into the playoffs as a six seed, and then. Uh, last year, you look at the Eagles being in one of the worst divisions in the league history, really, and then again needing to win four must-win games at the end of the season just to get into the playoffs as a four seed. I think internally, the Eagles look at that and they don't really care about how they got there. They kind of just care about the bottom line. But mm-hmm. I care about how they got there because when you look at the teams that are winning the Super Bowl in today's NFL, it's not like it used to be where you just kind of get in, you sneak in, and you can go on a run. No, it's not like that. It's like the teams who are winning the Super Bowl are regularly also like the best regular season teams. It's the teams who are getting the the first round buys. 
the one or two seed. Now, of course, that's different, where the the one seed is the only team that gets the first round by. Um, so I, I just think the the bar should be raised, and if the Eagles are going to go out here and say this is the new normal, which they did after they won the Super Bowl, then the standard should be high. The standard should be okay. You guys should not only just be like a playoff team, but an actual championship like favorite, not even just contender, but a favorite for the title. And they haven't really been that. And it would just be great to see them not have to dig themselves out of a hole like they had the past two seasons. I just don't think that's really sustainable. You can't just go into every season being like, okay, we'll just figure it out at the end. Because what if, you know, you don't at one time, like you just kind of time runs out where bad luck strikes. And uh, obviously the Eagles have been hit hard by injury. So I'd be remiss not to mention that. That is something that has worked against their favor. But they've also relied on one of the oldest, if not the oldest, roster in the NFL. So part of that is their own fault, too. Uh, all of this is to say, like, the pressure should be on. It shouldn't be like Howie Roseman's going to get fired. The Eagles uh, don't win the Super Bowl this year. But, like, they should at least win, I feel like, double-digit games. And they should at least make the playoffs. And if they don't, then that should put pressure on Howie heading into 2000 or 20. 21. And I almost think that the coaching staff will get the heat first, which I think is mistaken because I think the coaching staff has done a good job consistently of maximizing the talent they've had on the roster. To me, the bigger issue over the past couple of seasons was like the talent wasn't there. The speed wasn't there either like offensively or defensively. They just weren't built like a modern NFL team in that sense. And I think the pressure should be on the front office almost before it's on the coaching staff. Well, this is what we have these interviews because I, I, Ahmed was, was thinking he's going to talk about the coaching staff. Nope, front office. So that is what we need to hear. Brandon, where can we find you on social media, especially your podcast? It's, I, I've told you numerous times that you guys were always have always been the the folks we look to as you know, kind of what we want to be. So please tell us where we can find your work. Well, I always appreciate that, Derek. It's crazy now when I think about it. We've been podcasting, or I've been podcasting, I should say, um, for Region Radio since 2013, so seven years now, which is just a crazy thing to think about. And we're about to have our weirdest season yet (laughs) with who knows what the NFL looks like this year, the pandemic and everything. Um, But yeah, whether there are games or not, there will be plenty of Eagles coverage at bleedinggreennation.com and, of course, with the podcast, too, at BGN Radio, which you can follow on Twitter at BGN underscore radio. And obviously check it out wherever podcasts are available. You know what? I can't let you go without this one. Almost one more question because it just came out there, and I can't sure. let you go. Last question before you go. Here you go. What about the home field advantage now? If we're not putting fans in the stadium out there in Philly, that changes a lot. I mean, it's one of the biggest home field advantages in the league right there. Yeah, that's it's a great question. It is absolutely like a fair point to make because I don't know. I mean, they do have. I, I told you the stat of the the defense, like just to allow the fewest points at home over the mm-hmm. past uh, what is it four seasons or so now, and to not have that anymore. Um, and although I guess it's not a hundred percent settled that they won't be there, there was some there was some talk that they definitely wouldn't be allowed to be there. Then that was kind of there was some kind of like pushback on that. Um, so it's like not perfectly clear, but I mean, obviously, even if they are, it's just it would not be to the same extent mm-hmm. that it normally would be. And I definitely think that's a detriment. I mean, the, the crowd noise definitely helps this team, and just even from an energy perspective too, they, they just seem to to almost like bank on okay, you know, things can go wrong, but we have games at home, we'll win those ones, and then we'll be good. And uh, even on the road too, really, to be honest, like 
Um, I mean, you look at that Rams game or some of these Rams games that Eagles have played in uh, a couple of seasons ago. Like, there are plenty of Eagles fans showing up mm-hmm. to L.A. Yeah. Uh, they, the Eagles fans travel well. So it, it even hurts them on the road, too. Uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. That's definitely something working against them. I was just curious to know that because, uh, you know, the Rams certainly haven't had that home field advantage quite yet. And we were hoping to have that this year. And then <laughs> 2020 happened and everything was going to be nowhere. So, all right. Brandon Lee, thanks so much. Appreciate you for your time. And here we go. Here's 2020. Let's do it. The Rams have the Eagles in week two, and I just don't see this in the cards of the Rams. They don't match up well with the Eagles at all. They have them for a while. It's been a long time since we've even seen the Rams beat the Eagles. I have serious concerns over this game. I have serious concerns about the Rams being possibly 0-2 or even 0-3 after three weeks in the NFL. Sorry, they play in week three, right? Week three? Yeah, I'm getting them all mixed up, right? Week two, week three. Week three, week two. It's in that first three-game stretch. So the Rams play the Eagles in that first three-game stretch, and I just don't see this in the cards. They're not a good matchup for them. They're not a great matchup. They haven't been for a long time. Yet the Eagles have their flaws. They have their inconsistencies, which have blown my mind. They get the Super Bowl a couple years back. They beat Tom Brady in the and the Patriots, and they bring back the following season a pretty loaded roster. And proceeds just to bomb out. Last year, all these different weaknesses on a roster, still lots of talent there, but they can't seem to get back over the hump. Let's see they do it again this year. The Cowboys, in my view, are a stronger team than they were last year, but yet the Eagles are still there. We'll find out how they go. We'll find out how they do. All right, so moving on. One of our notorious Rams reporters out there is Cam De Silva. He does a great job running the Rams wire. He's done a great job, I think, covering this team fairly over the years. It's hard to do. In, in the media business, when we get a chance to cover any sport, any team, we develop biases. I am openly a Rams fan. I've done my best to be supportive and fair to them. I've also been willing to criticize them. Well, he's not a Rams fan. I know, right? He covers the team, covers it well. But he grew up watching the Cowboys. So if there's anybody who's going to be open and honest about this game and what the Cowboys bring to the table is Cam DeSilva. Um, he's done a great job again over Rams Wire. He continues to do a great job. And I'm looking forward to what he continues to produce as part of that site and moving forward. So check it out. Here's our interview with Cam DeSilva for Rams Wire. All right, we got Cam DeSilva here for Rams Wire. And I'm seeing you got a new job as well, writing somewhere else. What's up with that? Yeah, doing a little sports betting uh, writing for Sportsbook Wire, part of our network. So I'm um, kind of dipping my toes into other fields. It'll be a lot of NFL still, though, over there. Ex- expanding the web, just going deeper yep. into the, yep. the Silva spider web. And uh, speaking of spider webs, Jalen Ramsey just wove himself a big web today, making a ton of money. Oh yeah, a ton. Uh, yeah, I th- I thought he was going to approach twenty million. I didn't think he was going to leapfrog it by a million. Um, but here we are. So I mean, this one caught us a We were planning on doing the same cover of the Cowboys, and we are, by the way. But your immediate reaction to that is what? Um, that they didn't really have a choice. Um, really, 
when they traded for Ramsey and gave up two first round picks, it, they knew they were going to have to sign him to an extension. They knew his asking price, I'm sure. Um, so they didn't really have much of a choice when it came to, to extending him. And uh, with him and his agent knowing that the Rams gave up two first round picks, they had all the leverage. The Rams had no leverage in this in this uh, negotiation, really. Um, they knew that if they tagged him next year, he would probably hold out. And um, they weren't just going to let him walk. So um, they really didn't have much leverage. They had to kind of just bite the bullet and almost overpay for him when you're considering that he's making um, $4 million more than the next closest cornerback. Um, so it's, it's a lot of money. And now the Rams salary cap and roster is even more top heavy than it was before, but it's something that they had to get done. It's something they had to bite the bullet. I think you're, you're nailing it right there. They had to do it. It was going to happen, I think sooner or later. And I've been arguing for a while now that that was a whole purpose behind cutting girly trading cooks Mm -hmm. is you had to bite the bullet, eat the salary cap hits on those to clear space for next year. And that's mm-hmm. what they're doing. They're clearing space to be able to pay the money that we knew they had to pay out. And I guess you had to do it if you don't want to, be, want to carry that stigma of being the team that wouldn't pay anybody because they just kept moving people out. Kept right, people yeah. Out. Yep. After seeing their trades for Tlaib and Peters and um, Cooks, I, I mean, they did pay Cooks, but um, his, his time with the Rams was only two years. So, um, they didn't want to be the team that uh, traded two first-round picks for a year and a half of Jalen Ramsey and kind of botched the whole thing. And I'm seeing some people on Twitter saying it's a lot of money they overpaid. It's a terrible contract. But how would they be feeling if they let him walk and traded two first-round picks for mm. for just, what, 18 games with them? Or, or I'm sorry, like 24, uh, 25 games of Jalen Ramsey? And it would it would look even worse than it does the contract. So. Um, like you said, and like I said before, they didn't really have much of a choice and he set his asking price and they met it. I also think with them as well, they're, they're tying that secondary to him mm-hmm. with contracts coming up for Johnson and more down the line. This has to work. They cannot fail here. If mm-hmm. this partnership for the next five years does not work, that's going to set this franchise back for a while at the cornerback position they because they can't really pay much else in the secondary long yeah. term. Yeah, Ramsey needs to to live up to the contract and at 21 million it's going to be tough to do, but he has to be that true lockdown corner that we saw in 2017. He has to shadow number one receivers. He has to be a game changer in the secondary because now you're probably not going to pay Troy Hill. You're going to have to rely on guys like Darius Williams, David Long, um Terrell Burgess. Um, eventually probably Jordan Fuller, who's going to maybe replace John Johnson next year because I can't see the Rams retaining him. Um, It just complicates their entire salary cap situation and and their financial status um, because it puts an emphasis on drafting and getting this cheap talent. But obviously the Rams are going to be thin on draft picks with no first round pick next year. So um, it's it's a difficult situation where they're going to have to really nail their mid-round picks and late-round picks. And this year, it seems like they, they really got good value with uh, with Van Jefferson. Cam Akers doing well in camp. Jordan Fuller uh, really had a good camp. Terrell Burgess is going to be an important player. So hopefully those guys stick around and, um, and really play up to um, a starting caliber level. Um, and then on the offensive line, you have to you have to really get the most out of the guys that they drafted with no boom and Edwards and um, Blythe. Well, they, and... Uh, 
I'm blanking on Austin Corbett, who they traded for. So you got to get something out of them, too. I think it's in the end, that's what the Rams really are saying. We believe in our system to develop players enough that we can lock down our stars, especially on defense. And they have done it. I think it scares me a little bit when it comes down to needing to spend money on, say, a pass rusher, because the pass rusher to me mm-hmm. looks problematic, to say the least. Mm-hmm. I guess we're going to find out real quick. But, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're saying. We're saying we can develop our other guys. And that's what we're yep, going to do. And the, yep, and they're going to need to. They're going to need Terrell Lewis to, to hopefully he's healthy, but um, be an important piece of the pass, pass rush next year and moving forward. Because if you look at the outside linebacker position next year, Leonard Floyd is gone. Samson Ebukam is gone. Um, so they're going to have to find two new starters again. It's, it's been a revolving door for the past three, four years at that position. Dante Fowler and um, Clay Matthews and Matt Longacre and Robert Quinn and all these guys that they've gone through. And it's going to continue next year with those guys being free agents. And that's not a cheap position. So you're going to have to find um, impact players in the draft and cheap players in free agency and uh, hopefully Justin Hollins can maybe be be a guy that um, sticks with the Rams for a few years. So um, these expensive positions like offensive line, left tackle, possibly with Whitworth retiring at any moment, and then edge rusher, um, they're going to have to find money and talent uh, to, to get these guys in. And that's why my thought process too is we know they just spent a whole bunch of money. We also know they've been working on clearing out money for 2021. I never thought that Whitworth would play three more years. And that would, if he retires after this year, that changes mm-hmm. the game. But then you yeah, better make sure you got someone at left tackle. So this is going to be a really interesting team to watch. We're now the third youngest team in the league. And yet this Sunday, they're going up against one of the more loaded teams in the league in Dallas with an experienced coaching staff. One of the, this is a coaching staff that has, I believe, four or five coaches on that staff who have at least been interim head coaches, if not full board head coaches in the NFL. Including Bones, including Skip Pete, former Rams coaches. How do you look at this game coming in? You're, you know, you we all know your feelings about the Cowboys, at least in the past, and cover <laughs> the Rams now. Uh, how do you preview this game? How do you see it going out? It's going to be a fun one. Um, I think it's setting up to be kind of a shootout, um, especially with no preseason work for any of these guys. There could be some sloppiness, but I think some of that's going to come on defense with coverage and um, blown coverages and just missed tackles because these guys haven't been hitting guys um, like they normally would. Um, so I think it's going to be a fun offensive game. Um, the Cowboys, we obviously know about their offensive weapons. They have maybe the best receiving core in the league right there with the Rams. Um, they're both, I would say these are probably two of the best receiving cores in this game. Um, so it's going to be fun to watch Dak Prescott sling it around. Um, I think the, the Cowboys are going to try to take advantage of the Rams inside linebackers where they're really inexperienced. Mm. And uh, I, I think it was Mike McCarthy or, or Jerry Jones um, said this week that uh, Tony Pollard and Zeke are really going to be big parts of the passing game as receivers. So you're going to get some matchups with Micah Kaiser and Troy Reader and uh, and Kenny Young. And that uh, doesn't really bode well for the Rams, but um, those guys are really just going to be thrown to the fire and have to step up against one of the best offensive lines and running games in the league. Um, but as for the Rams, they can take a, take advantage of this young secondary. Um, they might have Trevon Diggs starting at, at corner. Cheeto um, Awuzie might be a corner. He might be a safety. Um, it's just a really inexperienced secondary right now. And um, I think that's something that the Rams have to take advantage of. So looking also at 
with the Cowboys lost because they, they picked up a whole lot. Their, their draft was pretty stinking good. See uh, mm-hmm. Lamb coming in. They had a surprise retirement last year, Travis Frederick. And it's rare we would ever talk about a center mm-hmm. retiring. But this guy was the heart and soul of the offensive line. He's the guy who's getting the ball back to Prescott on every snap. What does this mean for the Cowboys without any preseason to work this through coming in against the Rams? Yeah, they did have Joe Looney last year at center because Frederick was out for, uh, I think, the entire season. Um, so they do have some experience without Frederick being in there. But he's such a, he was such a good player. He was such a big part of that offensive line next to Zach Martin. Um, the offensive line, I wouldn't say, is up to um, what it was a couple of years ago, especially with Lyle Collins out for this game. He's on IR. So that's a that's a big blow at right tackle, and hopefully will help Leonard Floyd coming off that left side of the defense. Um, but missing Frederick, that's huge. Um, not that Aaron Donald is really going to line up against the center that often, but um, he does get double teams from centers and guards, and um, not having Frederick there is, is a big blow to uh, to the Cowboys' offensive line. He'll hopefully get some matchups with Connor Williams. That's definitely a mismatch for uh, for Williams against Donald and, and something the Rams are going to have to try to take advantage of. Um, so I'm interested to see how Sebastian Joseph Day does on the interior. I thought he had a pretty good season last year, even though he didn't get a ton of credit for it. Um, but that's going to be a fun matchup on the interior with those with uh, honestly both sides. Uh, the Rams offensive line against the Cowboys defensive line, which is um, which has a lot of talent, even with Gerald McCoy gone. Um, so the trenches are going to dictate a lot of what happens in this game. Uh, but you obviously, like I said, you can't ignore these receiving cores and the secondaries, too, because that's going to those are going to be big matchups, too. Well, I thought Frederick played all year last year. I thought it was 2018 that he was out. Oh, maybe it was maybe it was 2018. He was out. I mean, that was losing. I mean, that's still inconsistency no matter how you frame it. Yep, it was 2018 he was out. Yep, so that's my, my mistake. But um, I think it was Joe Looney who filled in two years ago when he was out. And then they go out there and they draft the center this year. You know, I've got to be honest, if, if I'm being objective and I'm looking at the Rams, I don't like this matchup. I don't like the matchup at all. I don't like the fact this is a team that has not played any preseason games. It has a, almost a whole new coaching staff alongside mm-hmm. Sean McVay. They have a, new, a rebuilt quote-unquote rebuilt linebacking core. They, they have a defensive line that has to kind of make up for that. Your secondary is great. You have a wide receiving core that really, while they are able to make plays on the move, the deep threat last year thought the offensive line wasn't there. This year is the offensive line actually better against the, against Cowboys offensive line that can penetrate. I don't like the matchups here. So as a guy who knows both teams overall, Pop me off the ledge or help push me over the ledge. Where are you going with this? Yeah, it, it's a tough matchup for the Rams. There's no doubt about that. I think really the the only favorable thing that they do have working in, in on their side is um, their receiving core against the secondary in Dallas because it's such a such an inexperienced secondary for the Cowboys. Um, not that Anthony Brown and, and Cheeto and um, Jordan Lewis haven't played, but um, you don't have Byron Jones. Um, they cut Ha Ha Clinton Dix, so. Even the safety position is a little bit of a question with uh, although Xavier Woods is playing. Um, this is just a matchup that the, the Rams have to take advantage of. They have to um, throw the ball consistently and well and, and avoid turnovers. Um, Cowboys defensive front is no joke. Um, obviously, we know about Jalen Smith and Leighton Vander Esch. 
So they're they're good against the run. They're good in coverage against running backs. Um, so I wouldn't expect the the running game for the Rams to get off to the greatest start. Um, but Jared Goff is going to need a big game against the secondary to kind of keep the offense moving and keep up with Dak Prescott and, and the offense on the Cowboys side. So are you allowed at Rams Wire to make a prediction or not? Yeah. Yep. What is it? What's the prediction? I haven't made it yet, but when the schedule <laughs> came out, I did pick the Cowboys. Um, Completely objectively and, and not no bias in there at all. Um, but I, I do just think, I, I mean, I get sucked into this team with their talent every year, it seems. But um, they are, on paper, one of the better teams, it seems, in the NFL. Um, I still I still think the Rams are going to be a 500, over a 500 team. Um, I think kind of 9-7, and 10-6 and six is where they're going to be. Um, they're a good team. They got a lot of talent. This is just not the best matchup right out of the gate with, Brandon Staley calling plays for the first time, um, offensive line kind of working together uh, for the first time in a regular season game with this group. Um, so it's not the easiest matchup for the Rams, but it's definitely a winnable game. I mean, they're only what underdogs by three points, I think it was. So um, it's, it's going to be a close one. It's going to be, I, I would expect, a fairly high scoring game. Um, so we'll see what happens on Sunday night. So you're, you're thinking is different. I think this is a blowout, honestly. Really? The Cowboys. I just the matchup to me does not. It doesn't look good to me at all. And yeah. I mean, you're giving a different point of view, and that's what we have in the show. But I just see too many different things in the way. Too many things that mm-hmm. that can block a Rams win, and that includes no home crowd. You're opening a brand new stadium, right. a gorgeous yeah. freaking cathedral, and no one's there to watch it. <laughs> yeah, so. that's it's it's really not ideal for them. Um, that place would be loud. I'm, I'm sure there would still be Cowboys fans because the West Coast and, and Southern California is still littered with with Cowboys fans. But um, it would have been a great experience for the Rams having the home crowd there for the opening of SoFi. So can you let folks know where they can find your work, where they can find all that you do? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Cam De Silva. Um, I don't tweet every single thing that I post there, but um, everything that I do write is shared on the Rams Wire, and uh, you can find us on Twitter at the Rams Wire. All right, and you got one of ours over there too. Steve's still writing for you, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Look, check it out. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Derek. Always okay. appreciate you having me on. You got it. And hey, this will be. I'll, I'll have this um, edited into tonight's recording. So. I'll have it posted tonight. Thanks a lot. All right. right. Sounds good. Thanks, Derek. Always good catching up with you. Same here. Take care now. Well, there's his thoughts for it. I've been talking about this a little bit. I'm going to say it again. I do not like this matchup for the Rams. I talked with Tommy the other night on Rams Brawl, and 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 he thinks that this is an upset for the Cowboys, for the Rams or the Cowboys. Mike and Steve, that the Rams have a good shot. I just don't see it. And it's not a criticism of this team. I think it's a bad situation for the Rams. They have not played anybody else yet. They're still getting this roster settled. You have a, a practically new coaching staff. They did not have an offseason together as a unit because of COVID. They're playing at home with no crowd. I just I don't see how this works well against a club that is in my view, Super Bowl-level talented in most positions overall. They have an a all-star cast of coaches, although it's a new coaching staff for, this, for that franchise. And they are a team that 
hammered the Rams last year. This Rams defense, actually, in my view, is probably a little less talented than last year's Rams defense. They still have no proven run stoppers in the middle. Their pass rush is essentially, for what we know is gone, that could change. These guys who've been waiting in the wings like Okoronkwo, we'll see what they got. But there's a lot for this Rams defense to prove, and I'm not sure the Cowboys are the team to prove against. I could be 100% wrong, by the way. I could be completely wrong in how the Rams match up with the Cowboys. But on paper right now, I don't like it. I think this has blowout written all over it. I can think of some of the major games in recent years, especially opening early games where the Rams just kind of just laid some eggs. And this has the feel for that. But that said, I think Mike's also said this well a couple of times. Everybody gets a mulligan this year. Everybody gets a break. We don't know what to expect. This is going to be a crazy year. And in the case of crazy years, maybe just maybe the Rams come in this year and shock everybody and beat the Cowboys. And the reason why I'm saying it's a shock because, again, experience levels, they're just on the side of the Cowboys right now. The Rams are now the third youngest team in the league. So where does this leave us? As we get ready to go here and, and say goodnight, my final thoughts my final predictions for the Rams heading in 20, uh, 2020. I have the Rams going 9-7, and seven, which is quite possibly, quite probably going to get them in the playoffs. Okay? I think they're a team that has a lot to prove in that 9-7. and seven. This, this could easily be a 5-11 and 11 team. Anytime you break in a very young coaching staff, you've pretty much sent most of your experience gone. They're, you, how do you replace Wade Phillips? How do you replace Bones Fossil? Bones is coming in to coach against the Rams this weekend. How do you place guys like that? Well, we're going to find out just how smart Sean McVay is. We're going to find out just how smart Les Snead is. Because the Rams have gone out there and made some moves in the last two years, which have basically taken a 2018 Super Bowl team and refreshed them with new faces in the coaching staff, new faces on the roster, and all kinds of train wrecks in between. Marcus Peters, gone. Keep Tlaib, gone. The whole decision last year not to play your offensive line in the preseason to find a crap fest for the offensive line during the year. What, is this all fixed now? Did McVeigh learn from his mistakes? Did Jared Goff take the next step forward? Are the Rams safe offensively now? So let's lay this out. Here are my five keys for the Rams to be successful in 2020. Five keys. They have to, absolutely have to, reestablish the running game. That is their bread and butter for years. The talk's been about Jared Goff. It's been about the wide receivers. But it's also been about Todd Gurley. Well, Todd's gone now. But this offense has always thrived around a running game. Always. You're going to find that when the Rams can't run the ball, they might put up offensive numbers, i.e. yardage, but the end result is not what they want it to be. They have to run the ball. That is key. You've got to establish whoever it is, whether it's Malcolm Brown, whether it's Cam Akers, whether it's Neil Henderson. you got to make it happen. And it's got to happen early. This whole season changes if the Rams come in and become a fantastic running team again. So that takes you to key number two. goes right in hand on key number two. 
this offensive line. The offensive line was an absolute train wreck from the start. Again, big mistake last year. Absolutely big mistake not playing those guys in the preseason. Well, there was no preseason this year either. But at least these guys will play together. It's actually, believe it or not, a deep offensive line. But how top-heavy are they? In other words, how talented are they really at this point? Can they do the job? Can they make magic happen? Three. And again, this all works together. I talked about this in the last episode. What about your wide receivers? You're probably thinking, what about Jared Goff? Well, it's all about this. If Goff has a running game, if Goff has protection, and if Goff has receivers who can get deep, get past defenders, in other words, break away on deep in a deep game, then this offense is on fire next year or this year. No matter how anybody says it, no matter what you want to blame about it, this is a fact. Outside of Brandon Cooks, Rams receivers have struggled to get separation on deep routes in the last couple of years. That's just a fact. Go check the film. You can say yak. You can say all kinds. Of, yeah, great. The Rams have done a great job getting these guys in space and getting them open. But you need a deep game. It's just how it is. You want to have your offense in a position where defenses cannot keep you honest. And we saw that a lot last year. The Rams did move the ball, but they were slower. They had to be more methodical. They had to move into a new formation, 12 personnel. And it just wasn't as explosive. Having a deep game helps you be explosive. It helps you be able to have a quick strike ability. To knock teams off their own game. So no matter how I want to blame it, they must have a deep game this year. If you have a deep game, all of a sudden Jared Goff is looking a lot prettier. Okay? All of a sudden a lot better quarterback. So if you're expecting me to say Jared Goff's a key, well, it's all wrapped into the first three. Here we go. Number four, defensively. What about your pass rush? Who Who are your pass rushers right now? We have people who we think may pass rush. Samson, for example. Oko Rockwell. Oko. Maybe. Who are they? We know Aaron Donald will be there, but Aaron Donald will get triple teamed all year. Every snap, possibly, probably. If the Rams don't get other people there. It's not going to be Michael Brockers. He's never been a pass rusher. It's not going to be Sebastian Joseph Day. He hasn't done it in two years for the Rams. These guys get you one-offs once in a while. There's no real true pass rusher yet established. Samson's been the closest. Who will it be this year? Who will it be? Can Leonard Floyd go back to old form? We're going to find out. Okay. Last key. Inside linebacker. Michael Kaiser? He's a starting inside linebacker now. She's the whole linebacker core. Who's stopping the run? Who's stopping the run? They're not that much bigger as a unit now than they were before. 
they have to be a team that can at least somewhat middle of the pack stop the run. One of the biggest debates I got into last year in the show was with Tommy about the Rams' run defense. And with very few people. And the one thing that kept getting pointed out to me was the Rams' rush defense was horrible. I'm looking at the numbers, and for much of the year, they're top four, top five. But then when you tear apart all the numbers, look at the schedule, look who they played. They may have been top four, top five against average teams in the league. But, geez, man, the Ravens shredded them. The Cowboys shredded them. The Rams did get shredded. And I think it's part of what led to Wade Phillips being gone. Certain games, certain lack of adjustments, they got shredded. Is this team going to be able to match up schematically where size isn't cutting it? Do they even have the size to stop the run somewhat consistently? They're going to have to. The Seahawks are going to try and run. The 49ers will run. They have a schedule full of teams that want to run. Buffalo, for example. The Giants want to run. Tampa wants to run. Tampa's deep at the running back position now. We're going to find out. All right, folks. So there's my look. There's my five keys. My prediction is we're going to have a mixed bag. There's some successes, some failures. I think 2020 is a growing year for the Rams. They're the third youngest team in the league right now. And before we go, one last thing I want to talk about, and that's Ramsey. He signs a massive, massive deal. Uh, our friends with the Rock Pile Report came at me a little bit earlier today talking about how no team – that has two players take up you know, a large majority, a large portion of their salary cap, of the salary cap has ever gone on to win a Super Bowl. And my feeling on that is, so what? So what? And what I have to say about that is, this team isn't about 2020. Some people don't want to hear that. Some people don't want to hear that. Can be actual rock power report, but this is a Buffalo podcast, and these are good guys. They'll be they'll be on our show next week previewing the Buffalo game. Only one team in NFL history has won a Super Bowl. This is what they're saying to me. While two or fewer players account for twenty one point five percent of the salary cap, the 49ers that had Rice and Young. I'm saying this right now. The Rams didn't make this signing for twenty twenty. They made it for twenty twenty one and beyond. This is why they gutted. So many of the high salaries off their roster for this year. That's why they basically took their medicine to try and clean up the salary cap. And coming into this week, they were just barely over the salary cap. Say it like this. If you're thinking it's about this year and the Super Bowl, I think the Rams are just kind of getting things in order for 2021. I'm not saying they're not trying to win this year. I'm saying the eye is looking forward to next year. And they're counting on something else, too. For the last how many years now, they've done a great job, an excellent job defend, <sighs> developing players. It's been all about development. That's what they're banking on. They're banking on player development for making this work. You can be top-heavy with your salaries 
if you got guys coming up through your pipeline developing, here's my concern. Sooner or later, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to get development perfect every time. And I'm concerned that here now is that time with a new coaching staff and they're develop these guys. Could this be where the Rams' plan falters? We're going to find out. We're going to find out real quick. And with all that in mind, it's time for us to go. You can find us on Twitter at TalkRams. You can find me on Twitter at DC Paul. You can find the other guys who run this show at me. That's right, former Los Angeles Rams defensive back Michael Stewart at 1Duke23. You can find Steve Goldstein at Rams are home 16. We'll be back post game on Sunday night to look at the Rams result. In the meantime, I hope you had a great time filling in, listening in to what became a mega episode of Rams Talk Radio. Have a great one. We're out of here. See you Sunday night. control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand the chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed.